it was encouraging to worship together this morning. Um, it, it always is every Sunday. There's just something about, and I say this a lot, but there's something about God's people coming together, lifting our voices together that, that heals the soul and reminds us of the holiness of God and the greatness of God. This has been a, a difficult sermon to prepare for me emotionally. And, and so I just, I just want to start by, by acknowledging that because not only am I preparing a sermon on elder qualifications and qualifications of leaders in the church, but throughout the last two weeks we've had news coming in of a leader in Christianity, another leader in Christianity that fell and fell into immorality and, and fell into sin. And, and last week I alluded to it, a number of you asked, and I've been wrestling with, do I even mention it? But because it's so public, and most of you know, it has been just heartbreaking to see what has happened in, in the Ravi Zacharias ministry. And what has happened to this man who was a great man for the kingdom, a great apologist who has led people to Christ. But we can see the danger when we walk away from God. And we can see the danger when we allow certain things to creep into our lives that reduce accountability, that reduce the protection we have, and Satan pounces and Satan attacks. And we've seen the sin and the depravity come out in the news, things I can't even repeat this morning. And and I come to this text grieving. I come a little frustrated. I come a little angry because I'm tired of seeing men and women who are leaders in Christianity fall. And I'm tired of seeing what happens when that happens to other people's faith and what happens to the church and what happens to the testimony of the church. It has happened far too often and should make us ask what is going on. Because for the grace of God go any of us. And for the grace of God, the leaders in this church, except for the grace of God, the leaders in this church could fall. It is far too easy for us as believers to give lip service to our walk with God and not be concerned with real accountability, real growth, and real commitment. And the consequences are tragic. In Village, we've got to be honest when we say that grasping a position or influence, even in a church, can cloud our commitment to holiness. The very positions of authority can cloud our desire for holiness as we cling to what we think we have. As a church, we need to ask, are we putting people into positions, and not just village, but as a church in the world, are we putting people into positions of influence or giving them weight without a strong walk with God? Are we putting them on a pedestal without checking spiritual qualifications, without holding them accountable? And if we are, that's on us, the church. He fell Because of lack of accountability. He fell because sin was allowed to go unchecked and because people around him didn't feel like they could call him on his compromise. It grew. And it has destroyed the reputation of his ministry. It has harmed the testimony of Christianity and Satan is attempting to use it to harm the testimony of God's church. And we come to this text then soberly. Because when we walk apart from God, when we allow things to creep in, when we accept even just a little bit of compromise, we walk on the edge of an abyss. Because at some point, it's not just a gentle slope down. It is a cliff. And we fall off and Satan takes advantage. We must be vigilant, church, against this. Because it could be any of us. We must take seriously our own holiness, each other's holiness, and the holiness of God's church. We must take our propensity to sin and, a, and of self, self-worship seriously. We are in a fight, not in a spa. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And if we're to be serious about it in the church, it starts with godly leadership. It starts with choosing leaders who are walking with God and who have ministry hearts above all else, where it's not just the things we do when we come, but it's caring for each other and caring for our walk with God. 
And so we come to the text today, which talks about qualities and qualifications and character of leadership. And I could not have picked a different text for the the environment that we are in to learn from, but this is what the Holy Spirit has for us today as we come to Titus chapter 1. We come to talk about those qualifications. We come asking the question, and, and, and this has been in politics and in other leadership, does character matter? Does character matter in leadership? Or is it just charisma? Is it just skill? Is it just, well, they do the things I like? And this morning we have to say, with Paul writing to Titus, character not only matters, it is everything when it comes to leadership. Especially in the church. As we talked about last week, Titus was facing a challenge. He was left to finish church planting in Crete. And he was left with these, these baby churches who had just started and, and no leadership yet. And in, in, in an island where there were distractions and difficulty and there are people there that, that were liars and into immorality and all kinds. It's a rough crowd. And he's left to start these churches. And so the very first thing Paul says when he's coming to how we pursue godliness and how we're undistracted from godliness, how we keep from falling, the very first issue he addresses is let's talk about leadership in the church. Let's talk about leadership qualities. Turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We're just going to look at 5 through 9 this morning. Five verses. Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9. And the first verse, verse 5 there, is sort of an introduction to the next four. And Paul says to, to, to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So these are his marching orders. First thing, you've got to get these churches into order, these baby churches that aren't very organized yet. And the very first thing is to appoint elders in every town, because there were probably a number of churches. Crete's a, a fairly large item, uh, island, and so there were churches in each of the cities, and Titus is to go around and to help these churches form, to give them some organization, to install godly men to lead the church, and then to instruct the church to follow those godly men. And in a, a situation where it was a rough environment, this was vital that leadership is on board. And so you you have the marching orders. Appoint leaders. Appoint elders to the church in every town. And so the very next logical thing would be to answer the question, well, how do I pick? How do I pick leaders in the church? I could pick the most popular. We could have a vote and little signs and little things like Zach for elder or, or, you know, happy for elder or something like that. And, And we could have speeches and everything. So we could do a vote, popularity contest. You know, we could look at who's the wealthiest, who wants to buy their position, who's the loudest voice. There are all kinds of ways people rise to influence and leadership. But none of those are what we want to look for in godly leaders. Rather, we want to look at this list. And Paul gives us 15 items here, and we're going to go through them pretty quickly. He gives us 15 items to look for here, all of which aren't aren't based on the external, but they reveal the inner character of godliness. And when I think about those that have fallen and how many leaders I've seen fall in the last five years, it almost always has been because they've lost the inner character of godliness. In fact, I would argue that not a one would have fallen if they had adhered to these guidelines. If they had had men and women around them that were holding them to these guidelines. It is that important that we start with qualifications for leadership in a church and in ourselves, and that we pursue them. If I had to summarize really the main point of these five verses, it's to choose leadership in the church based on spiritual qualifications and godliness rather than expedience or popularity. Choose leadership in the church based on spiritual qualifications and godliness rather than expedience or popularity. So character matters. Godliness matters. And so we have these qualifications, these 15 things. And by the way, the very fact that we have a list of 15 qualifications shows that character matters, shows that Paul viewed these as essential. 
easiest way to think about that is we can think what happens when, when godly character is, is absent. What happens in leadership if these characters of God, characteristics of godliness aren't there? And we've seen it. We've seen it in churches, in the news, like I said. It, it leads to, even on a local level, loss of trust. It leads to loss of credibility, lack of consistency in decisions, moral failure. It can lead to all kinds of things, all of which destroy God's ministry and God's work. And so character and godliness matter. Just a quick word about some of the, the terms that we're going to see this morning. This morning we're going to see both elders and overseers in the text. And, and really I want to talk about elders, overseers, and pastors because in the New Testament those three terms are used interchangeably. Some slight nuances between them, but they are used interchangeably for the same office in the New Testament church. And, and we would use those interchangeably for the church here and, and even today. So elders, when that is used, it was those that were older, often those that sat at the city gates making the decisions for the city. And that term was used in the church then for those that were more mature that would be able to make decisions in terms of the church. And so that was a term for those that were leading spiritually. Pastors is another word that's used, poimen in the Greek, and it means shepherds. And it's another aspect of being an elder, being a pastor, is to shepherd God's flock. Keep them fed, deal with danger, protect them from danger. Sheep sometimes go all over the place, and so the shepherd are there to guide and to protect even from unseen things and to just care. So that's part of leadership. The other word that we're going to see this morning in this text, and, and again, it's used interchangeably with elders, is overseer. Or episkopos, and you can see where some of the different denominations um, get their words. But overseers, and, and this one, the term is used of one who watches over the welfare of others. Guardian, keeper. We know that from, from God's word, the overseer keeps watch over souls. And the overseers are tasked with, what, with making decisions for what is best And what is best for the people in the church and where we go as a church, all within the sphere of the church family. We'll see in verse 7 that overseers are also called God's stewards. They are taking care of God's church and leading God's church. It's not the elder's church. It's God's church. It's not the pastor's church. It's God's church. But these three terms are used interchangeably, and that's helpful. It's one of the reasons why I often call our elders lay pastors. They, they just don't get to be here 40, 50 hours a week, but they still get all the responsibility. It's great. Uh, um, but our elders are pastors, and our pastors are elders, and, and this is the term for overseers that we see in the New Testament. We always, in the, in the local church, see a plurality of elders. Even here, it's, it's used in the plural, appoint elders plural in every church. And boy, with some of the failures we've seen, we need elders as a group to hold each other accountable so that way one man isn't somehow all of a sudden going rogue and making all kinds of decisions. And so we come to verses 6 through through 9 and the 15 items, and, and these are mentioned quickly and some of them I'll spend a little bit more time on. Some of them we'll go through pretty quickly. But some observations about them before we dive in, um, these are not just for leaders, Okay? We can look at this and all but, but eight of you might be saying, oh good, this is a Sunday I can just figure out what's wrong with our leaders. These are not qualities just for leaders. In fact, an elder is put or an overseer is put into that position because they show spiritual maturity that we should all be striving for. Make sense? And so um, these these qualifications, almost all of them, with the exception of maybe one, are to be for all believers, men and women, all stages, something we're striving for because these are a description of a mature, godly life. And so as we, we read through it today, read through with two, two different ways of looking at it. Number one, these are qualities we need to affirm and make sure are present as we put someone in leadership in the church. But number two, how am I doing at pursuing these things? Am I leaving some holes open in my life that Satan is just dying to dive through? Or am I pursuing Jesus 
in every area of my, of my life. So what we're going to see about the qualifications is these aren't like super gifts. These aren't like superpowers. These are what every Christian should strive for. They're very ordinary. D.A. Carson said this, the most remarkable thing about these characteristics is that there is nothing remarkable about them. They're normal, what we should be pursuing. Another observation, these are not all-inclusive. So this list is not every qualification for an elder. We have 1 Timothy 3, we have 1 Peter 5 and different things, but this is a good starting point, especially since it's God's word. Also, these, these don't require sinless perfection. This list is not a list that says that if you failed once, you're gone. You're not for leadership, maybe not even in the church. No, that's not what it's saying. It, but, but these are more striving to have a life that is characterized by these or not characterized by some of them. The inner life must, must match the outer. Now, now, for that to happen, there's got to be transparency and accountability. We have to know an elder. We have to know ourselves and have others know us. But often the question I ask isn't, has, has someone ever failed in that way? But are they characterized by godliness and have they dealt with any failures and, and repented and seen God's forgiveness in their life? And so we want to look at this. This isn't a list of, of how to be sinless, but what we should be striving for and what should characterize us. Along with that, the next observation is they're not unattainable. They're not unattainable. They represent maturity. They, they're unattainable on our own, but with the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, all of these are attainable to a point where we can be characterized by spiritual maturity. As we partner with the Holy Spirit and let him work and allow him to change us, these things will grow. Two other just observations. All of these should be characterized of a person before we put them in leadership rather than after. Now, now think about this. Sometimes it can be tempting to say, well, I'm going to do all those things once I'm an elder. No, no, th- then we don't have a pattern of life. It doesn't characterize you. I, I think especially of some of the, the external ones like apt to teach and hospitality. No, no, an elder or someone that, that is ready to be an overseer will already be practicing those in some way. And so to be considered for leadership here, the leader must already be holding to those qualifications. And finally, as we look at this list, these are just a tool to help us compare a potential leader's life and our own lives with Scripture. How do we compare to God's Word? And so even our nomination committee and our, and our elder board, we look through these lists again every year and compare and say, okay, does this characterize this man or this woman for the deaconess board? Do these qualities fit? And so we come to 6 through 9. And I'd like to read through the whole passage and then we'll go through them quickly. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the truth, to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So 15 things that for the rest of our time we want to run through, about two minutes each. So we'll see what we can do. An elder must be these things, but these are also things we should all strive for. First one is above reproach. Actually, this is the only one in the list that's mentioned twice, right? And, and he's, he's categorizing it and really looking at it, it looks like above reproach is the summary of the rest of the list, okay? That a leader, a godly mature person should be above reproach in everything they do. And so we're, I'm going to call this the main point of the list, the summary of the list. Now again, it's not perfection or sinlessness, but above reproach means the absence of a legitimate issue that those in and outside the church could hold against him of or accuse him. To, to summarize that, one author said, not chargeable with some offense. And so it means that if someone has an offense or something, they've dealt with it, they've taken care of it, they've repented, they've sought reconciliation, 
and there is no outstanding charge. It's like when you look at your, your statement from a company, if there's outstanding charges, you've got to pay those. Above reproach says there's no outstanding moral charge against this person. Sometimes that's translated blameless in, in your Bibles. And, and I, I like the word blameless as long as we don't think sinless. But blameless, there is nothing current that someone can blame that man or woman for. And so this deals with reputation and, and having a good moral reputation. John MacArthur said it's, it's that the person has no great blot that people could point to. And I just wanted to use the word blot there because that works. No great blot that people could point to. So they have a good report about them, and deservedly so. This means a person of integrity, maturity, and solid character. Now, for this to be true, for us to be above reproach, we, we've got to have transparency and accountability. I've got to be open with my life to be, be above reproach. And accountability means I've got to let people in my life that are willing to call me on my junk and that are willing to call me if there's a failure or if there's a problem. And in almost every case where we've seen a failure of a, a popular leader in Christianity, it's this is one of the biggest offenses is people could no longer question them. People could no longer come alongside and say, you know what, I'm not sure about this, or should you be doing this? And pride and arrogance, and we're going to talk about that, get in the way and keep them from being questioned. John Acuff said, leaders who cannot be questioned end up doing questionable things. And that is so true. And so if we're to be a people above reproach, we've got to be open and open to church family questioning us and pointing out sin. This isn't criticizing each other if done in the correct way. It it can be if we do it in the incorrect way. But as, as we come and hold each other accountable, this isn't criticizing each other. It's protecting the holiness of each other and protecting the holiness of God's church. Above reproach is one of those qualities that protects not just our own reputation, but the reputation of the church and the gospel, especially for an elder. And so questions we ask on each of them, especially if you look online at our document about church leadership, I have questions we can ask ourselves and about others. Does he live in a way that keeps himself above reproach with all who know him? Has he dealt with any past issues in a humble, godly, repentant way? And so then after this above reproach, after this summary statement, we see three different areas where Paul instructs that a a leader is to be above reproach. The first one is in the home. An elder and those that are striving to follow God should be blameless in the home. And leadership starts at home with, with his family. For an elder, that's something we want to look at. The home becomes the test bed for, for how a person leads and where we can see what their qualifications are. How a man oversees his home gives insight into how he will oversee the church. And so he, he starts with marriage and then he goes to kids. And so the next one is be the husband of one wife. Or be a one-woman man is literally what the Greek means. And so we want to ask, is he a faithful husband? Now, now this isn't just not cheating, okay? Now, that's part of it. Purity is part of it. Not cheating, staying away from porn and all those things that would bring another person into the marriage. All of that is assumed there. But this is more to say, is he devoted to his wife? Is he devoted to this woman that he has a covenant relationship with before God? to protect, and to love. And so it deals with fidelity. It also deals with how he treats his wife. Am I loving? Am I understanding? First Peter says, if I don't live with my wife in an understanding way, my prayers will not be answered. Is that what we want for an elder? <laughs> Someone whose prayers aren't going to be answered? No, and so it matters Character matters, and it starts at home because that reveals true character. A man's relationship with his wife is a window into how he will lead the church, the bride of Christ. And so there's a lot of ways people have taken this. Be a one-woman man, I think, is the best way. Devoted, show faithfulness. It is not saying that you have to be married to take this role. Now, there's, there's more you can see when someone is married to their faithfulness, 
But even a single man, let me talk to the single men that are here, you can already be showing yourself to be pure. You can already be showing yourself to be a one-woman type of man. And that's maturity, and that's godliness in action. This also is not negating that someone that's been married before or married again can take one of these positions. Um, There's a number of times in God's Word, we'll study one of them in Sunday school today, There's a couple reasons why God sees a marriage as over and then those men are eligible still for that position of leadership. But it does mean we look at it, we look at the reasons, and we ask according to sort of the summary, is he blameless in that? Is he above reproach in that situation? And so some of the ways this comes out, men, are comments. We can tell tell when each other are one woman men by, are they commenting about other women? Are they commenting about sexual things inappropriately? We can tell by what someone watches or what their gaze lingers on. And make no mistake, men, the women in this congregation notice what you notice. And they notice what your gaze lingers on and it directly affects your credibility. And so we've got, we've got to give this to God. And we've got to hold each other accountable to give this to God. Not being flirty with other women. Not giving into porn. Not saying, oh, she's hot. Not saying things like, well, you know, it's not sin to look. Those are all sin. They're not being a one-woman man. And I'll say it, they hurt your wife. They devastate her. How do we treat our wives? How do we value our marriages? It matters. It reflects your spiritual walk. It it reflects your ability to be devoted to a commitment you've made rather than compromise. Second half of this, number three, does he lead his children well? The verse in Titus says his children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so does, does a, a leader manage his own household well? And this is especially for men who are leading their homes. Like marriage, a man's leadership of his home gives insight into his qualifications for leadership in the church. I, I love what Howard Hendricks said as he was in seminary preparing men to lead churches. He said, if your Christianity isn't working at home, don't export it. There's a lot of wisdom in that. How is our Christianity working at home? And with, with children who push our buttons and test us when we are the most impatient and when we're tired and when we're frustrated, it gives marvelous insight into our ability to teach and discipline in a godly way. And so Paul says his children are to be believers. Lots of debate about believers. The word actually isn't believers. It's, it's to be faithful. And so some have argued, does this mean faithful to God? Does this mean faithful like First Timothy would imply to following dad and following dad's instructions? And, and again, we don't know which one. And so I think we take both. Because kids, they will follow mom and dad's faith while they're at home, while they're young. When they're off on their own, that's a different question, a different situation But the wording here, especially the word for children, are young children in the household that are dependents of a parent. And so really, this this is a qualification that's looking for how does a man lead those that he is responsible for in his home? Not open to debauchery. And that word, some translations translate wild. That's probably a good translation. Reckless, a prodigal, wasteful spending, drunkenness, loving alcohol, loving drugs, loving sex. All of that is debauchery. And so a man's leadership in his home helps his children stay away from that, guides his children away from that, and disciplines when they step toward that. Insubordination, meaning rebellion, a refusal to sit under authority, were to teach them to obey. See, dads, we have an incredible power in our homes. Do we discipline Or do we force? Discipline implies teaching. Discipline implies coming alongside. Still, 
still coming and showing truth and, and still insisting on truth in our homes. But how we do that matters in leadership. Whether we come with, with a harshness whether we, or whether we come graciously with a proper respect, our tone and our attitude, dads, it matters. It matters. And what you can accomplish with angry words lasts only this long, whereas what you accomplish with God's word and teaching lasts this long. And so we can see leadership in the testbed of the home. This is God's church. And we're responsible for it. Then Paul moves on in the next verse. Verse 7, for an overseer, and he repeats overseer, uses it alongside elder here. For an overseer, as God's steward, reminder, this is God's church, we are simply under shepherds of the great shepherd, must be above reproach. And so he brings that up again. And the next things that he's going to talk about, the next 11 things are to be above reproach or to be blameless in character. And he's going to deal with internal character of godliness, of spiritual maturity. And he'll start with five things to avoid, five leadership destroyers. And then he'll talk about six characteristics to pursue. And so we start with the five knots, I call them. Don't do this because these, these ruin your leadership. And it's interesting, all of these seem to be especially prevalent in Crete as well in some of the descriptions there. One author observes that since the office of elder is one of authority and power, the five vices here are those in which a person in, in authority are, are particularly tempted. And so these are, are very pertinent to someone that is in leadership. The first one in verse 7 is to not be arrogant. To not be arrogant. Now this one, I would, I would encourage you to underline and highlight because it doesn't just mean what you think it means. Okay, arrogant, what do we think of? First word that comes to mind. Pride, right? I know I heard it. Uh, <laughs> Pride is sometimes how we define arrogant. The word that is used here is so much broader than pride. And if we just think of it as pride, we are going to miss what this verse is saying. This includes the idea of being overbearing or self-willed. One Bible dictionary said it's pleased with self and despising of others. And so this is the person that is so self-willed and overbearing that they obstinately maintain their own opinion, they assert their own rights, and they're reckless with the rights, feelings, and interests of others. You catch that? It's basically saying, I'm right, I can do this best, and I'm going to look at that first, because obviously I would, since I know what's best, and I'm not going to be considerate of the feelings of others. I'm not going to make the, the opinions of others a priority over my opinion. I'm going to be all about what I think needs to happen. And that comes out in stubbornness. It comes out in being domineering. It comes out in being overbearing. When we think we're right, or even when we think we can do it better than someone else in the church, we are crushing ministry. We are crushing the work of God. See, rather than being self-pleasing, what we're looking for in leadership is does that person seek to please God and others first? Why do they make the decisions they make? Is it for their own convenience? Is it for their own preference? Or is it for the, the needs and the preferences of others? It's a ministry heart versus just doing things. Completely different mindset. Now, pride's part of it. We need to beware of pride, but it's so much more. Next one is not quick-tempered. Literally, it means hot-headed. An elder must not be hot-headed. How quickly do they get irritated? How quickly do they get angry? Especially when people are annoying. See, it's... It's pride at not getting one's way that turns into anger, that turns into being quick-tempered. This person is usually a bully with the mouth. And you can't lead that way. And people are going to test you and situations are going to test you, whether it be in leadership in the church or in your walk with God. And you can't jump to quick-temperedness. It never works and it always destroys your reputation. 
It comes from inflated, an inflated view of self. And we know that in everybody else except ourselves. And so are we willing to step into situations and create peace rather than stirring things up? One of the tests for, for people on this is, does it take a lot to get that person angry? And if they get angry quickly, they're really fighting self and pride. Number six on your notes, the third not, not to be a drunkard. Literally doesn't drink too much or, or doesn't keep wine close to him. John Stott said, instead of don't drink and drive, he said, don't drink and teach. There's wisdom in that. But this has to do with how a person deals with life. Are they self-medicating some of the difficulties in life to try to forget? Is there drunkenness or even tipsiness? Because those prevent the Holy Spirit's control and they are both sin. An elder is tasked with making decisions by the Holy Spirit, not by alcohol or drugs, or anything else influencing him. Now, this isn't saying you can't ever have a drink. Paul even tells Timothy in, in, in another pastoral epistle, drink a little wine for your health. But this is freedom from enslavements and love of something, drinking or anything else. And so we ask, can I confidently say I'm not a slave to drinking or anything? Because if I'm a slave to something other than the Holy Spirit, I'm a slave to the wrong thing. The next knot is not violent, number seven. And when I first read this, I'm like, wow, okay, I'm good on this one. <laughs> this, one this one sounds bad, but I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thug, so we can skip this. But First Timothy, Timothy, the instruction there says, be gentle, not violent. And this isn't just physical. It's, it's a harshness, a lashing out of others physically or with our words. Oh, 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 no, don't add that. It is not being a bully, not being pugnacious. It's not using our words forcefully to get our way. Because at that point, we're manipulating and we are abusing our words. And and I've seen spiritual abuse happen so much where a leader will come and say, don't question me, I am God's authority in your life. You need to do this. And that is spiritual abuse. It is being violent with God's word. See, words often strike harder than fists. And so this is not being a reviler, not wounding spiritually out of our authority. We have to be careful not to exert spiritual violence on people. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in churches. I've walked with people trying to heal from situations like that. Rather, we should be gentle and humble, bowing low. You and I aren't the ones that cause spiritual change anyway. That's the Holy Spirit. And unless we've somehow taken on a new role, that's not our job. And so I don't have to be violent. I have to share truth in a gentle way and see what God does. I'm called to calm situations rather than inflame them. The last knot in this section of leadership destroyers is not greedy for gain. Not greedy for gain, or in First Timothy, not a lover of money. And this gets to, okay, what's the motivation for leadership? And it directly confronts greed, materialism, and so much more. But what is the motivation? And, and in some cases, especially for itinerant preachers of the time, their motivation was money. If, if I went and preached, I would preach at a place while money came in, and when the money dried up, oh, God's telling me I should move to the next city. This is what happened. This was typical. Now, now we don't have that so much in a local church, but what other things might we want to be in leadership to gain? Maybe it's self-worth, self-esteem. Maybe it's I want my own way because back to I know what's best and I can do this better. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's status or prestige. All of those things would be covered under not greedy for gain, gain of something. Those in leadership shouldn't do this for for gain. All of the resources, all of the glory, all of the credit is to go to God anyway. And so this is a, a caution against motivations that are other than the kingdom of God. And, and again, this is going to take people close to you that know your motivations. We can hide this one really, really well. But are we open enough 
both if you're a leader in the church or if you're just striving for maturity in Christ? Are we open enough to have people question us on our motivation? Why are you doing that? Is it just for how you look in front of others? And so we look for people that are generous for leadership, that are open-handed with their possessions, that are not grasping at leadership, not grasping at the, the respect that they think leadership gives. Those are the five knots, the five leadership destroyers. Just to summarize them, a self-willed, drunk, violent, combative, greedy man is the opposite of what an overseer should be. Amen? Amen. But let's look at the heart behind each of those things. Then we get to six positive qualifications. Paul contrasts these with but, but he should be this way. The first one is hospitable. And for someone to be a leader in the church and, and someone that we're picking to be an elder or an overseer, especially in this section, they're to be hospitable. This deals with how they treat strangers, how they treat people they don't know. The word literally means lover of strangers. Are they devoted to the welfare of others and intentional about being devoted to the welfare of others? Because that shows they can put self aside and do something uncomfortable for the kingdom of God, which is a vital qualification for spiritual leaders. And so this includes being welcoming and open to people outside of your circle of friends and making them feel part of your circle. It means coming on Sunday morning and noticing who, who hasn't been talked to. Who, who has no one around them? During greet time, who hasn't had anyone greet them? To be intentionally noticing that, that's what, that's what mature believers do. We're hospitable. To say, hey, you know, I know you're new here. Do you want to come to lunch? Or can I help you find a class? Or whatever it is, entering into their world and then bringing them into your world. Merging our circles. Adopting as many people into the family of God as we can. The next one is a lover of good. Not just loving good. And the word here actually is a little bit different for lover of good. It's not just loving good, like, hey, I really like that, that's good. But, but loving it enough to do it. There's an action side of this. And on this one, think, think both things and people. So lover of good, if we think of things, you can think entertainment and choices we make. Do we love what is good and pure? Or do we find ourselves gravitating toward things that we would never watch if Jesus was in the room. And that's more than just immorality. There, there's a lot of things junk out there that we would never watch if Jesus is in the room. And a lover of good notices that and is sickened by that and says, no, I want to I I fill my life with things that are good. But also people is included here. Do we choose to be around people and have our closest friends be people that are pure and upright, that are following God? And so one of the internal qualifications, characteristics of a leader is loving good. We can tell that by the friends they choose, the entertainment they choose. And we need to look at that. This is another area that I actually think has been an indicator for many of the men that have followed. As you see some really odd things creep into their teaching or things they talk about, things that aren't good, things that they like that you're like, eh, it's a little off, but hey, you know, they're walking with God, no problem. No, that's, that's where we get into trouble. The next one is self-controlled. We're going to hit that a lot in chapter 2. Self-controlled, to be prudent, to be thoughtful, to be in control. Stopping long enough to make wise decisions instead of reacting rashly. Being able to control one's emotions, to be able to control one's behavior, to act with sound judgment, especially in difficult situations. And so this is the kind of person that doesn't let impulsiveness control his decisions or his thinking. Often described as level-headed, clear-headed, not rattled. And then we get to upright and holy, the next two. And these are, are really closely related. Upright is to be pursuing what is just, to be pursuing what is righteous. And it's that this, this man or woman is characterized by actions that, are com- that show a commitment to righteousness and following God's instructions without shortcuts or compromise. This is integrity. 
The one that strives to follow God in every area of life. And then holiness just adds to that. It's not just upright, but that they are devout for God. They are set apart for God. And this is a different, slightly different word for holiness that refers to our, our pious actions or our devout actions. Does our life match our religion or what we say our faith is? And so we're to be upright and holy. And then the last one in this section is disciplined. Disciplined. And, and again, these are all interrelated. Having one's emotions, impulses, and desires under control. So this is a lot like self-control. But it's really self-mastery that I have a disciplined life. I'm, I, I can do what's right whether I feel like it or not. So it's creating an orderly, God-centered life. Even when that's hard. And so we have blameless in family, blameless in character. And the third section here, which is the last item in verse 9, Paul says you need to be, your leaders need to be blameless in doctrine. Blameless in doctrine. So check their commitment to God's word. Check their doctrinal stability. And so the, the elder must know and teach God's word. He must hold firm to Scripture. And verse 9 says that. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So you've got to know something to hold firm to it. You've got to have studied it. You've got to believe it. And so when we look for spiritual leaders in the church, are they grounded in the Word? Are they reading the Word? Do they know God's Word? We don't want elders, for that matter, deacons or deaconesses, we don't want leaders in the church that haven't opened their Bible in a year. But are they grounded in a study of God's Word and are they firm in a study of God's Word? And then this verse says two reasons why. And, and We'll draw the list to a close with these two reasons. So that, and that's how you know that there's a reason for this, and he gives two things. So that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And leaders are to be firm in the faith so that they can teach. And in in 1 Timothy, we see apt to teach. So they, they can teach or instruct others to follow it and that they can rebuke problems rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine now the ability to teach here doesn't mean that every elder needs to be able to come up and preach on sunday morning there are all kinds of ways that teaching happens teaching can happen on sunday morning i hope it happens on sunday morning teaching can happen in a sunday school class teaching can happen in a community group teaching can also happen when i see an elder walk to the side with somebody and pray with them and open God's word and give them a word for their life where they're at. This one-on-one discipleship and teaching is just as important, maybe even more important than the public teaching. And so sometimes every one of our elders can teach and teaches in some way, but not every one of our elders comes up here. Um, That's okay. There are different kinds of teaching. It's really just the skill to pass on knowledge and wisdom in ways that help somebody learns. But then also the second part of that is able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. And we're going to find out in chapter 2, sound doctrine isn't just what you know, it's what you do. And Paul throughout Titus is tying, okay, believe this, but how does it show in your actions? And so if we're, if we're rebuking those that have fallen from sound doctrine, it's, it's both this, this is what you're teaching is wrong, what you believe is wrong, but it's also holding people accountable for their lives. And if an elder, if a leader is firm in God's word and loves God's word, that will just come out in ways that are not bludgeoning people, but are helping them learn in ways like we would do with our kids as dads, not exasperating our children, as Ephesians says, but to bring them along in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And an elder is able to do that. Man, that is quickly 15 things. And you could be sitting here saying, I am so overwhelmed because I've got two of them. Or we can say, I can't do this on my own. I need the Holy Spirit to help me with this. And we can come and and ask God to do a work in our lives. Jesus died. We sang about it this morning. He died and defeated sin. It's done. And most of the, the problems with these is rooted in sin. The Holy Spirit indwells us. 
sanctifying us. That's the power to pursue this list. And so I would encourage you to, to take this list and pick one thing to start with, one thing that you want to work on, one thing that God has put on your heart to work on, and then start praying that God would do a work in your life in that. And then ask someone else to pray. Bring in the transparency. Bring in the accountability. And see what God wants to do. Maybe it's improving some things in your home. Maybe it's some things you need to be avoiding that you're doing. Maybe it's some inner character things that you want to develop. Maybe it's starting to infuse God's word into your conversations with others as you teach. But this list of 15 things, my fear and why I started the way I did today, my fear is that we've heard this so many times that we take this list lightly and we forget how important it is in the church for leaders to be accountable. For individuals to be accountable. And it is time we stand and say, we will not let those kind of failures happen in our church because we are going to follow God's instructions for how we choose leaders and what we pursue in our own lives. And so I end with this. If there are things you see in any of us as elders that are concerning, please talk to us. Please question us. Please bring God's word and say, I'm not sure that you're living according to God's word in this way. And I don't think I've ever publicly asked that because I could have an email box full this week. (laughs) The holiness of God's church is that important. Let's pursue it and let's, let's grab at it and let's insist on it in God's church. Let's pray. Lord God, oh, you've given us 15 things in a job description that are overwhelming. But Lord, these are simply what reflects a mature Christian of what you are trying to do in our lives. Help us to seek you in this. Lord, form maturity in every person sitting in this room. Lord, and at the same time, I pray that everyone in leadership here would rise to these standards, would would pursue these standards, and that you would protect the holiness of your church. Do whatever it takes, God, to protect the holiness of your church. Lord, I pray that even with public failures in Christianity, that the church would be able to regain its testimony and show through faithfulness the beauty of the gospel, that you died on the cross for our sins. You've paid for them. It's done if we will repent and follow you. Lord, may we be about that, the main thing, and not be distracted from that. Lord, I pray for our church that you would use us mightily for you. In your name, amen.